Chapter Eighteen, Part Seven of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Eighteen: The Kingship in France, Part Seven. A death which seems premature for a man as sound and strong in constitution as in judgment struck down Philip Augustus at the age of only fifty-eight, as he was on his way from Passy-sur-Eure to Paris to be present at the council, which was to meet there and once more take up the affair of the Abigensians. He had for several months been battling with an incessant fever. He was obliged to halt at Mantes, and there he died on the 14th of January, 1223, leaving the kingdom of France far more extensive and more compact, and the kingship in France far stronger and more respected than he had found them. It was the natural and well-deserved result of his life. At a time of violence and irregular adventure, he had shown to Europe the spectacle of an earnest, far-sighted, moderate, and able government, and one which, in the end, under many hard trials, had nearly always succeeded in its designs, during a reign of forty-three years." He disposed by will of a considerable amount amassed without parsimony, and even, historians say, in spite of a royal magnificence. We will take from that but two paragraphs, the first two. We will and prescribe, first of all, that, without any gainsaying, our testamentary executors do levy and set aside, out of our possessions, fifty thousand livres of Paris, in order to restore, as God shall inspire them with wisdom, whatsoever may be due to those from whom they shall recognize that we have unjustly taken or extorted or kept back aught, and we do ordain this most strictly. We give to our dear spouse Isambar, evidently in Yaburia, queen of the French, ten thousand livres of Paris. We might have given more to the said queen, but we have confined ourselves to this sum in order that we might make more complete restitution and reparation of what we have unjustly levied. There is in these two cases of testamentary reparation, to persons unknown on the one hand and to a lady long maltreated on the other, a touch of probity and honourable regret for wrong-doing which arouses for this great king, in his dying hour, more moral esteem than one would otherwise be tempted to feel for him. His son, Louis the Eighth inherited a great kingdom, an undisputed crown, and a power that was respected. It was a matter of general remark, moreover, that by his mother, Isabel of Hainault, he was descended in the direct line from Hermengard, Countess of Namur, daughter of Charles of Lorraine, the last of the Carlovingians. Thus the claims of the two dynasties of Charlemagne and of Hugh Capet were united in his person, and although the authority of the Capetians was no longer disputed, contemporaries were glad to see in Louis VIII this twofold heirship, which gave him the perfect stamp of a legitimate monarch. He was, besides, the first Capetian whom the king his father had not considered it necessary to have consecrated during his own life, so as to impress upon him in good time the seal of religion. Louis was consecrated at Rheims no earlier than the 6th of August, 1223, three weeks after the death of Philip Augustus, and his consecration was celebrated, at Paris as well as at Rheims, with rejoicings both popular and magnificent. But in the condition in which France was during the 13th century, amidst a civilization still so imperfect and without the fortifying institutions of a free government, no accidental good fortune could make up for a king's want of personal merit, and Louis the Eighth was a man of downright mediocrity, without foresight, 
volatile in his resolves, and weak and fickle in the execution of them. He, as well as Philip Augustus, had to make war on the King of England, and negotiate with the Pope on the subject of the Abigensians, but at one time he followed, without well understanding it, his father's policy, at another he neglected it for some whim, or under some temporary influence. Yet he was not unsuccessful in his wax-like enterprises. In his campaign against Henry III, King of England, he took Niort, St. Jean d'Angely, and Rochelle. He accomplished the subject of Limousin and Perigord, and had he pushed on his victories beyond the Garonne, he might perhaps have deprived the English of Aquitaine, their last possession in France. But at the solicitation of Pope Honorius III, he gave up this war, to resume the crusade against the Albigensians. Philip Augustus had foreseen this mistake. After my death, he had said, the clergy will use all their efforts to entangle my son Louis in the matters of the Abigensians, but he is in weak and shattered health. He will be unable to bear the fatigue, he will soon die, and then the kingdom will be left in the hands of a woman and children, and so there will be no lack of dangers. The prediction was realized. The military campaign of Louis VIII on the Rhone was successful. After a somewhat difficult siege, he took Avignon, the principal towns in the neighborhood, Nîmes and Arles, amongst others, submitted. Omri de Montfort had ceded to him all his rights over his father's conquests in Languedoc, and the Albigensians were so completely destroyed or dispersed or cowed, that when it seemed good to make a further example amongst them of the severity of the church against heretics, it was a hard matter to rout out in the diocese of Narbonne one of their former preachers, Peter Isarn, an old man hidden in an obscure retreat, from which he was dragged to be burned in solemn state. This was Louis the Eighth's last exploit in southern France. He was displeased with the Pope, whom he reproached with not keeping all his promises, his troops were being decimated by sickness, and he was deserted by Theobald the Fourth, Count of Champagne, after serving, according to feudal law, for forty days. Louis, incensed, disgusted, and ill, himself left his army to return to his own northern France, but he never reached it, for fever compelled him to halt at Montpensier in Auvergne, where he died on the 8th of November, 1226, after a reign of three years, adding to the history of France no glory, save that of having been the son of Philip Augustus, the husband of Blanche of Castile, and the father of Saint-Louis. We have already perused the most brilliant and celebrated amongst the events of Saint-Louis's reign, his two crusades against the Mussulmans, and we have learned to know the man at the same time with the event, for it was in these warlike outbursts of his Christian faith that the king's character, nay, his whole soul, was displayed in all its originality and splendor. It was his good fortune, moreover, to have, at that time, as his comrade and biographer, Sire de Joinville, one of the most sprightly and charming writers of the nascent French language. It is now of Louis in France and of his government at home that we have to take note. And in this part of his history he is not the only royal and really regnant personage we encounter, for of the forty-four years of Saint-Louis' reign, nearly fifteen, with a long interval of separation, pertain to the government of Queen Blanche of Castilla, pertain to the government of Queen Blanche of Castile, rather than that of the king, her son. Louis, at his accession in 1226, was only eleven, and he remained a minor up to the age of twenty-one. In 1236, for the time of majority in the case of royalty was not yet especially rigorously fixed. During those ten years Queen Blanche governed France, not at all, as is commonly asserted, with the official title of regent, but simply as guardian of the king her son. 
with a good sense really admirable in a person so proud and ambitious, she saw that official power was ill-suited to her woman's condition, and would weaken rather than strengthen her, and she screened herself from view behind her son. He it was who, in 1226, wrote to the great vassals, bidding them to his consecration. He it was who reigned and commanded, and his name alone appeared on royal decrees and on treaties. It was not until twenty-two years had passed, in 1248, that Louis, on starting for the crusade, officially delegated to his mother the kingly authority, and that Blanche, during her son's absence, really governed with the title of regent, up to the first of December, 1252, the day of his death. During the first period of his government, and so long as her son's minority lasted, Queen Blanche had to grapple with intrigues, plots, insurrections, and open war, and what was still worse for her, with the insults and calumnies of the crown's great vassals, burning to seize once more, under a woman's government, the independence and power which had been effectually disputed with them by Philip Augustus. Blanche resisted their attempts, at one time with open and persevering energy, at another dexterously, with all the tact, address, and allurements of a woman. Though she was now forty years of age, she was beautiful, elegant, attractive, full of resources, and of grace in her conversation as well as her administration, endowed with all the means of pleasing, and skilful in availing herself of them with a coquetry which was occasionally more telling than discreet. The malcontents spread the most odious scandals about her. It so happened that one of the most considerable among the great vassals of France, Theobald IV, Count of Champagne, a brilliant and gay knight, an ingenious and prolific poet, had conceived a passion for her, and it was affirmed not only that she had yielded to his desires, in order to keep him bound to her service, but that she had, a while ago, in concert with him, murdered her husband, King Louis the Eighth. In 1230, some of the greatest barons of the kingdom, the Count of Brittany, the Count of Bologna, the Count of St. Paul, formed a coalition for an attack upon Count Theobald, and invaded Champagne. Blanche, taking with her the young king, her son, went to the aid of Count Theobald, and on arriving near Troyes, she had orders given in the king's name for the barons to withdraw. "'If you have plaint to make,' said she, "'against the Count of Champagne, "'present before me your claim, and I will do you justice.' "'We will not plead before you,' they answered, "'for the custom of women is to fix their choice upon him, "'in preference to other men, who has slain their husband.' But in spite of this insulting defiance, the barons did withdraw. Five years later, in 1235, the Count of Champagne had, in his turn, risen against the king, and was forced, as an escape from imminent defeat, to accept severe terms. An interview took place between Queen Blanche and him, and, Party, Count Theobald, said the Queen, you ought not to have been against us. You ought surely to have remembered the kindness shown you by the king my son, who came to your aid, to save your land from the barons of France, when they would fain have set fire to it all and laid it in ashes. The Count cast a look upon the Queen, who was so virtuous and so beautiful, that at her great beauty he was all abashed, and answered her, By my faith, madam, my heart and my body and all my land is at your command, and there is nothing which to please you I would not readily do. And against you or yours, please God, I will never go. Thereupon he went his way full pensively, and often there came back to his remembrance the Queen's soft glance and lovely countenance. Then his heart was touched by a soft and amorous thought. But when he remembered how high a dame she was, so good and pure that he could never enjoy her, his soft thought of love was changed to a great sadness. And because deep thoughts engender melancholy, it was counselled unto him by certain wise men that he should make his study of canzonet for the val and soft delight ditties. 
So made he the most beautiful canzonet and the most delightful and most melodious that at any time were heard. Histoire des Deux et des Comtes de Champagne by M. Duabois de Joubanville, page 249, Chronique de Saint-Denis in the Recule des Historiens des Galles et de France, page 111 and 112. Neither in the events nor in the writings of the period is it easy to find anything which can authorize the accusations made by the foes of Queen Blanche. There is no knowing whether her heart were ever so little touched by the canzonet of Count Theobald, but it is certain that neither the poetry nor the advances of the Count made any difference in the resolutions and behavior of the Queen. She continued her resistance to the pretensions and machinations of the Crown's great vassals, whether foes or lovers, and she carried forward, in the face and in the teeth of all, the extension of the domains and the power of the kingship. We observe in her no prompting of enthusiasm, of sympathetic charitableness, or of religious scrupulousness, that is, none of those grand moral impulses which are characteristic of Christian piety, and which were predominant in Saint-Louis. Blanche was essentially politic and concerned with her temporal interests and successes, and it was not from her teaching or her example that her son imbibed those sublime and disinterested feelings, which stamped him the most original and the rarest on the roll of glorious kings. What Saint-Louis really owed to his mother, and it was a great deal, was the steady triumph which, whether by arms or by negotiation, Blanche gained over the great vassals, and the preponderance which, amidst the struggles of the feudal system, she secured for the kingship of her son in his minority. She saw by profound instinct what forces and alliances might be made serviceable to the kingly power against its rivals. When, on the twenty-ninth of November, 1226, only three weeks after the death of her husband, Louis the Eighth, she had her son crowned at Reims, she bade to the ceremony not only the prelates and grandees of the kingdom, but also the inhabitants of the neighboring communes, wishing to let the great lords see the people surrounding the royal child. Two years later, in 1228, amidst the insurrection of the barons, who were assembled at Corbeil, and who meditated seizing the person of the young king during his halt at Montherie on his march to Paris, Queen Blanche had summoned to her side, together with the faithful chivalry of the country, the burghers of Paris and of the neighborhood, and they obeyed the summons with alacrity. They went forth, all under arms, and took the road to Montherie, where they found the king, and escorted him to Paris, all in their ranks and in order of battle. From Montlhery to Paris the road was lined, on both sides, by men-at-arms and others, who loudly besought our Lord to grant the young king long life and prosperity, and to vouchsafe him protection against all his enemies. As soon as they set out from Paris, the lords, having been told the news, and not considering themselves in a condition to fight so great a host, retired each to his own abode, and by the ordering of God, who disposes as he pleases him of times and the deeds of men, they dared not undertake anything against the king during the rest of this year. Vie de Saint-Louis by Lenon de Tillemont, pages 429-478. Eight years later, in 1236, Louis the Ninth attained his majority, and his mother transferred to him a power respected, feared, and encompassed by vassals always turbulent and still often aggressive, but disunited, weakened, intimidated, or discredited, and always outwitted, for a space of ten years, in their plots. When she had secured the political position of the king, her son, and as the time of his majority approached, Queen Blanche gave her attention to his domestic life also. 
she belonged to the number of those who aspired to play the part of providence towards the objects of their affection, and to regulate their destiny in everything. Louis was nineteen. He was handsome, after a refined and gentle style which spoke of moral worth, without telling of great physical strength. He had delicate and chiselled features, a brilliant complexion, and light hair, abundant and glossy, which, through his grandmother Isabel, he inherited from the family of the Counts of Hainault. He displayed liveliness and elegance in his tastes. He was fond of amusements, games, hunting, hounds, and hawking birds, fine clothes, magnificent furniture. A holy man, they say, even reproached the queen his mother with having winked at certain inclinations, evinced by him towards irregular connections. Blanche determined to have him married, and had no difficulty in exciting in him so honourable a desire. Raymond Beranger, Count of Provence, had a daughter, his eldest, named Marguerite, who was held, say the chronicles, to be the most noble, most beautiful, and best-educated princess at that time in Europe. By the advice of his mother and of the wisest persons in his kingdom, Louis asked for her hand in marriage. The Count of Provence was overjoyed at the proposal, but he was somewhat anxious about the immense dowry which, it was said, he would have to give his daughter. His intimate adviser was a Provencal nobleman named Romeo de Villeneuve, who said to him, Count, leave it to me, and let not this great expense cause you any trouble. If you marry your eldest tie, the more consideration of the alliance will get the others married better and at less cost. Count Raymond listened to reason, and before long acknowledged that his adviser was right. He had four daughters, Marguerite, Eleanor, Sancy, and Beatrice, and when Marguerite was Queen of France, Eleanor became Queen of England, Sancy Countess of Cornwall, and afterwards Queen of the Romans, and Beatrice Countess of Anjou and Provence, and ultimately Queen of Sicily. Princess Marguerite arrived in France escorted by a brilliant embassy, and the marriage was celebrated at Saint, on the 27th of May, 1234, amidst great rejoicings and abundant largesse to the people. As soon as he was married and in possession of happiness at home, Louis of his own accord gave up the worldly amusements for which he had at first displayed a taste, his hunting establishment, his games, his magnificent furniture and dress, gave place to simpler pleasures and more Christian occupations. The active duties of the kingship, the fervent and scrupulous exercise of piety, the pure and impassioned joys of conjugal life, the glorious plans of a knight militant of the cross, were the only things which took up the thought and the time of this young king, who was modestly laboring to become a saint and a hero. End of chapter 18, part 7